Welcome back. When we left off last week, members of the Virginia Company had started to ask that the company be reconstituted. And across the Atlantic, Harvey and his council had signed an agreement stating their intention to set aside their differences and work together in peace. This week, that agreement will allow Harvey to reach the height of his success, and its breaking will lead to the governor's downfall in one of the most revolutionary events in early Virginia history. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. In February of 1632, Harvey and the General Assembly went about trying to strengthen Virginia's economy and enhance its security. It was time to codify laws with tangible strategies to achieve the goals they'd laid out two years before. And if I may say so, they did a great job. First, they passed the colony's first ever Highway Act, facilitating colonists moving into the forests away from the navigable rivers. Harvey also went through every law Virginia had, updating them to suit the current conditions. On the issue of tobacco, corn, and the economy, they required that two acres of corn be planted per person per year, and that Anyone who failed to do this would forfeit their entire crop of tobacco. And then they legislated that corn could be sold to the highest bidder. This was absolutely radical for most European countries at the time. The norm was still the mentality which would, a few years later, lead to Roger Keane becoming the most hated man in Massachusetts. There was a certain acceptable range of prices and profits that you could demand when buying and selling goods. Massachusetts may have approached the issue with an uncommon intensity, but 1630s Europeans would have understood that much more than simply allowing people to sell food to the highest bidder. The notable exception here would be the Netherlands, which had really rolled back its mercantile restrictions and which was reaping the economic benefits of that policy. But despite the unconventionality, that's exactly what Virginia did. And Harvey defended the decision by saying that none are so poor here that they may not have as much corn as they will plant, having land enough. No one needed to depend on corn purchases to survive. So if people didn't plant enough corn and they had to buy more to get through the winter, they may have to pay a very high price for it. But that was their own fault because every single landowner in the colony had the time, the land, and the tools to plant as much corn as they wanted. And they would have chosen not to do so. So this was an additional incentive to go beyond the minimum planting requirements. And by turning corn into a commodity, they maximized its value and therefore encouraged production. The second thing they did was legislate that tobacco could not be sold for less than sixpence per pound. 
If the merchants negotiated their prices as a single group, so would the colonists. They would allow the colonists to sell to whatever countries would pay the highest price, but there was a baseline minimum that tobacco could be sold for in Virginia. These weren't popular reforms with either the merchants or the king, but the colonists stood firm. Harvey told the king that the colonists had already built several small ships to trade with the Dutch on the Hudson, and he said that it was funny that English merchants couldn't afford to pay Virginians even a penny a pound for tobacco when the Dutch were happy to pay 18 pence a pound. He told the king that, like it or not, tobacco was Virginians' primary economic interest, and he urged the king not to impede their free trade. At the same time, though, they officially limited annual tobacco cultivation to 2,000 plants per laborer, which, according to my very brief research, translated to about 500 pounds of product per laborer. It brought planters back up to that 30-pound sterling per year wage, which was perfectly reasonable, but also meant that you weren't going to get rich on tobacco, so it incentivized other economic ventures. Furthermore, Harvey still wanted to decrease dependence on tobacco, and having a limited supply would also help with negotiations with the English merchants. And to further enhance the benefits of limiting tobacco production, they required that inferior tobacco be burned on-site, to prevent poor quality leaves from entering the market. So to address the free-falling tobacco prices, Virginia had decided that tobacco would be uniformly high quality, that there would be a limited supply, and that it would go to the highest bidder. And if merchants refused to pay a minimum price, they wouldn't get tobacco at all. Tobacco and food shortages addressed Harvey also ended the war with the Powhatan, negotiating a peace agreement with Opechanganew. This was definitely a controversial move, but the agreement included the provision that the Powhatan would leave the lower half of the peninsula between the James and York rivers where the colonists lived. This would enable the English to effectively build the palisade that Wyatt had envisioned. And the next spring, they did, and in fact, they built it further west than Wyatt had planned because the population was rapidly increasing. The Powhatan and English were separated, livestock were kept inside, and the colony could, in theory, be both at peace and secure. The council incentivized people to move to the area of the Palisade, where they could serve as the first point of defense for any attack by the Powhatan. John West and John Udy were among the first people to agree to move there, and they took particularly vulnerable and important defense locations, and for that, they were given 600 acres each. The assembly then offered 50 acres to anyone who would join the two within the first year, and 25 for anyone who joined in the second year. People who agreed to move there 
would also be exempted from certain taxes and public charges. So if you were willing to incur just a little bit of extra danger, it was a pretty good deal. And the economic plan was immediately successful. Not only did food scarcity completely disappear, but the next fall, fall of 1633, Virginia exported five to 10,000 bushels of corn to New England, which was just getting established at the time. And from then on, they would continue to be able to export massive amounts. Harvey reported that Virginia has become the granary of all His Majesty's northern colonies. The price of tobacco didn't fully recover, but the colonists were living a life of peace and plenty in a sustainable way for the first time ever. But no victory lasted long in Virginia. At the same time as Virginian ships carried corn to New England, the Ark and Dove were preparing to carry a group of colonists from England to the northern Chesapeake, and thus resumed Harvey's problems. When the Ark and Dove reached Virginia, Calvert showed Harvey the document supporting Baltimore's claim to the land that would become Maryland. Though he expressed initial reservations, Harvey was loyal to the king's wishes, and he also hoped that an amicable relationship with Lord Baltimore would help him convince the king to pay him his wages. But he was almost alone in his support of the colony. Only two members of the council, presumably his own appointees, were even indifferent to Maryland. One named Captain Purefree, who was a soldier, and the other a man named Henry Brown, who had virtually no wealth, power, or influence. On the other hand, when Matthews heard of Baltimore's patent, he threw his hat on the ground and scratched his head, stamped his feet, and cried, A pox on Maryland! He, the richest, most powerful man in Virginia, would take the lead in opposing Baltimore's papists, with Captain Claiborne following close behind in wealth, influence, and hostility. When Marylanders came to Jamestown saying that they suspected that Claiborne had incited the Indians to destroy the colony, Harvey ordered an interrogation. And it was this moment that solidified the re-splitting of the council between Harvey's supporters and Matthew's faction. Matthew's faction dominated the investigation, ensuring Claiborne's acquittal. And in a version of events where Claiborne was fully innocent, Harvey looked terrible, having prioritized Maryland's whims over the interests of Virginians. From there, it was only a couple of months before there was an irrevocable split. In June, Maryland Captain Thomas Young's ship arrived in Jamestown after being severely damaged by a storm. Harvey ordered a ship's carpenter to repair Young's vessel, but the carpenter was one of Matthew's indentured servants, 
and he didn't get Matthew's permission first. If he had tried, there was no way that Matthews would have agreed, but when he didn't, he opened himself up to scrutiny as both a Maryland supporter and as a source of arbitrary power who would commandeer another man's servants against his employer's wishes. Matthews told Harvey that actions like that would create bad blood in Virginia, and an argument between them began to turn heated. Harvey tried to defuse the situation, saying, Come, gentlemen, let's go to supper, and for this night, leave this discourse, and tomorrow we will meet and consult over business. But Matthews couldn't be placated. He stormed away, hitting the heads off of weeds with his truncheon. But Matthews was the most powerful person in Virginia, and Claiborne was second. They could do more than that. They controlled the council, and they led the House of Burgesses. They just had to wait for the right moment, and it wasn't long before Harvey made his next blunder. In an event that eerily mirrored controversies in England, Harvey tried to bypass the legislature and raise taxes on his own authority. His attempt was quickly thwarted, but Matthew's faction pushed to have the governor ousted, calling him extortionate, unjust, and arbitrary, and saying that he was fraudulently trying to profit from his position. They accused him of using public revenue as his own private property, and they accused him of taking a portion of the colony's trade duties. The controversy split the colony into the Harveyites and the anti-Harveyites. William Claiborne was still Secretary of Virginia, the second highest office in the colony, and at this point, Harvey removed him from his position and replaced him with Richard Kemp, who was a relatively new arrival, but who was firmly on his side. In just a few months, Kemp would be Harvey's only remaining ally. Meanwhile, Claiborne focused his attention on Maryland, trying to confirm his rights to Kent Island and to dispute Baltimore's authority. In the polarized year of 1634, an important shift in Virginia's political system sounds more like a side note. This was the year that the colony embraced its rural economy and formalized the shift to a decentralized government. Eight counties were formed, each with a monthly court established by commission from the governor and council, and this would become the basis of Virginia's permanent system of governance. But Harvey was now in a downward spiral. Toward the end of the year, the king sent over a contract which would create a royal monopoly on Virginia's tobacco, and the king demanded that the General Assembly sign it to give it the force of law, but the Assembly refused. They drafted their response as a petition, written largely by Matthews and Claiborne, and all of the Burgesses and councillors signed their names to the document, but Harvey 
kept the petition in Jamestown, merely sending a copy to the King's Secretary of State. When this was discovered, it alienated almost all of Harvey's remaining support and polarized people who had previously remained neutral. The text of the petition is long gone, so we can't know exactly what it said or why Harvey didn't send it onward. But tobacco was the lifeblood of Virginia, and it looked like Harvey wasn't going to protect it. And that was going to cause rage no matter what the details. Harvey said that the letter would do more harm than good in negotiating the future of Virginia tobacco with the king. It would infuriate the monarch and make him more forceful about the necessity of a monopoly. Harvey had already written the king, telling him that the planters were already working to enrich the merchants who were impoverishing them, and telling the king that under those circumstances, a monopoly which precluded trade with the Dutch would be devastating. But regardless of Harvey's reasons, his actions looked bad enough that even the Harveyites turned against him. Protecting tobacco was more important than politics or factional loyalty. It was a matter of stability or financial ruin. It was a matter of whether you'd give 5% of your annual income for a pair of shoes. They had signed the petition and Harvey had refused to send it. Matthew's factions began to organize their resistance at a settlement in the York River area, and in preparation, they also collected signatures on a petition listing their complaints about the governor, including the fact that he'd made peace with the Powhatan, something they said would inevitably result in another massacre. On April 26th, Harvey learned about their activities, and he knew the situation was dire. More politically adept men than he would have been powerless in the situation. A rebellion was imminent. Harvey ordered that the men circulating the petition be seized and clapped in irons, and he summoned a meeting of the council the next day. It was also in these couple days that the shootout between Claiborne's and Maryland's pinnaces took place, so conveniently for Claiborne, he was absent from what happened next. His actions couldn't be used against him in his fight to reclaim Kent Island, and the confrontation certainly didn't endear Maryland to Virginians. At the council meeting, Harvey laid his cards on the table. He said the dissidents should be dealt with according to martial law, but the council refused, saying that the dissidents were only voicing the people's complaints and that they should be given regular trials, which, of course, were likely to acquit them. Outnumbered, Harvey demanded that every member of the council immediately and without consulting any other member write down what the governor should do with the men conspiring against them, bearing in mind that he was the king's chosen representative. This was a reasonably well-thought-out political move. If they said that the men shouldn't be punished, then they were condoning rebellion against the king's authority. But if they condoned punishment, then they vindicated Harvey's arrests. 
No one knew what to do, and Matthews compared the demand to a scene from Shakespeare's Richard III. Finally, a man named George Menefe said that he couldn't answer the question because he lacked sufficient legal training. Menefe had found a justifiable way to decline answering, and others quickly repeated the response. After a violent debate and at an impasse, Harvey dismissed the meeting. The next day, it reconvened. Harvey and Menefe immediately resumed their argument about rebelling against the king's governor. As Menefe evaded, Harvey's anger exploded. He rose from his chair, struck Menefe on the shoulder, and said, I arrest you on suspicion of treason to his majesty. And John Udy gave the response. And we the like to you, sir. John Pott signaled, and two dozen musketeers emerged from the woods, surrounding the governor's house, guns ready to fire, and assuring Harvey that this was for his own protection. Matthews and the other counselors surrounded Harvey, grabbed him, and held him in his seat. Kemp stepped into the fray and told Udy and Matthews that Harvey was the king's lieutenant and that they should back off having already done more than they could answer for, and at this point, they laid their cards on the table. They told Harvey that he must and shall sail for England to answer the complaints against him. They justified this by saying that the people's wrath was so strong that they couldn't protect Harvey if he stayed in Virginia, but Harvey refused to go. Then 24 hours later, after consulting with Kemp, he agreed. The council told Harvey and Kemp that Kemp would fill Harvey's role as governor until the king appointed a new one, and then they ordered a meeting of the General Assembly to collect complaints about Harvey to add to the petition. At the assembly, they elected John West as acting governor, contrary to their prior promises. And on May 23, 1635, Harvey and two of his accusers, Francis Pott and William Harwood, sailed for England. This event came to be known as the thrusting out of Governor Harvey, and it was extraordinarily important and radical for the time period. They pushed out the king's appointed representative because they wanted to forcefully reject the king's chosen policies, so they had indirectly rebelled against their monarch. It was a sign of things to come. There was almost certainly some collaboration between people in England and Virginia in the months leading up to the coup. Matthews may have been discussing events and plans with people like Sands and Ferrer to maximize their political impact in fighting Maryland, restoring the company, and ousting Harvey. This seems very likely, but like so many things, no documentation exists one way or another. But if we're looking at the time period and the English Civil War, there are some pretty dramatic comparisons to be made between 
Virginia's conflict, and the wider debates going on in England. Harvey didn't seem like a bad guy, at least not to me, though some people disagree, and he seemed a fairly able administrator, but he was thoroughly unequipped to play the games which are necessary in politics, and to make up for that inability, he wanted more individual power, whereas Matthew's faction favored democratic control the system which gave them almost total control of the colony. I'm not saying that they couldn't have had ideological conviction too, but each side definitely took the approach that was most pragmatic for them. Harvey slipped into debt and attempted to extra-legally get enough money to pay some of that debt, and that served as a rallying point for the Matthews faction. Harvey was lenient toward Catholics, and that ultimately helped precipitate a revolt and a coup by a predominantly Puritan opposition. It's almost shocking how well Harvey's first term as governor mirrored events in England. But it's also worth mentioning Harvey's successes. Despite everything, he did alleviate economic difficulties, ended war with the Powhatan, opened trade, ended Virginia's food shortages for the foreseeable future, and made the colony an attractive enough place that the population more than doubled in the five years of his first term. Next week, though, we'll discuss his second term and his final departure from Virginia on the eve of civil war. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.